Welcome everybody, I'm Sean Asher and this is On Site, uh, where every week I get to spend an hour, more or less, talking with one of the most influential people in real estate in the world, uh, the people who shape our skylines, our cities, and the way we live in them. Today I'm very, very lucky to have Zeal Feldman uh, with me, who's the chairman and founder of HFZ. Very happy to have Zeal on the podcast. He has been a force to be reckoned with in New York City and other places in the world. I counted over 50 projects that he has, has worked on. Uh, HFZ was founded in 2015, but Zeal has been doing this for more than 25 years. And I'm looking forward to speaking to uh, him. Welcome, Zeal. Hi, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So, um, you know, we're hunkered down now. I don't want to talk about the coronavirus. It seems like that's everything we're reading and seeing. So I'm going to try and stay away from that because I believe this is a temporary thing that will pass. And I kind of want to speak to you a little bit more about larger long-term things like your career. Tell me, where, where did you first start getting into real estate? What was your first entry into the business? Sure. I was a real estate lawyer in the um, end of 1983-84. Graduated law school in 83. Got my first job in a small uh, law firm. And um, I was heading up uh, together with a real estate partner, the real estate division, and um, we, I practiced law from 1984 through um, 1990, and that was a frenetic time in the real estate market in New York. Um, oil crisis of 78, precipitated by the Yom Kippur War and the Arab oil boycott in 75. The city, of you may recall, was almost bankrupt in the mid-70s as a result of one of the reasons with the oil crisis. Interest rates had soared to over, uh, I think prime rate was over 20%. And um, there was a, one of the first recessions of sorts that I experienced in my professional life. So that was the first cycle, 78 to 83, 82, 83. I broke into real estate as a lawyer in uh, 1984. The market has started to take off. Interest rates had come down a bit. And I represented uh, many clients in transactional work, mostly in New York, but as well around the country. I did mostly transactional work, which was buying and selling commercial real estate um, for both development and um, operation. And um, that was a period of time in the cycle where, because real estate was increasing in value so quickly, people would sign a contract and then Within days, they would flip the contract for more money. They would either take their profit in cash or create something which didn't exist before and have, I haven't seen again, something called a wrap mortgage, where the profit in the buyer, in the seller, was tied up in a debt instrument. And um, my clients were doing so well in 1980, end of 86, beginning of 87, we thought we can do it as well. So we ended up buying or syndicating a couple of deals. And lo and behold, every lawyer who thinks he's smarter than their client ends up not being as smart. So we mistimed that market as, as lawyers. And when the market corrected, so a couple of things happened. The uh, Republican president, Reagan, believe it or not, had something called the Tax Reform Act of 86, which was negatively impacting on real estate. So there you have a Republican, negative impact on one of the largest capital markets in the country, real estate. Not that similar to Trump, another Republican, creating tax uh, advantages to a lot of Americans, but people in the real estate industry, depending on what business you're in, were not beneficiaries of those tax policies. So the Tax Reform Act, which took effect in the last day of 1986, eliminated four to seven to one write-offs that people were getting in buying rental housing around the country. So doctors and lawyers and other professionals were utilizing that vehicle to get write-offs against their ordinary income. That tax reform act eliminated it. What I remember as a lawyer, everybody was so frenzied to get all their closings done by midnight on 1231-86 I had been working 
48 hours, almost like a triage to get deals closed. I'd met my wife about a year earlier, and uh, we were getting married six months later, and we were going to take a trip to Miami. And she went there, and I was calling her telling her I wasn't going to make it because the last closing didn't take place until one minute before midnight on 12-31-86. Sounds like a James Bond movie. And well, my own little James Bond movie, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Wild times. It's actually times most people in the industry now don't even really remember or think of or know about. And um, it sounds like a wild and crazy time where there was mayhem. Well, you know, it, it happens every so often. It, it, a couple of years ago, there was uh, people wanted to get deals done for the purpose for other purposes. One was um, 421A benefits, uh, or other tax benefits to be building, getting in the ground, f- finishing foundations because of expiring governmental programs. So every so often in every industry announced ends of programs create frenzied um, buying. Um, not that similar to the estate planning uh, that the Republican administration put in a couple of years ago, giving a 22 to 20, $22 million exemptions, state gift tax exemptions for couples. So this was the Tax Reform Act. And, uh, but the interesting story is that was a negative towards the real estate industry. Part of what was driving real estate those days was, was tax credits. The market continued to climb right through 87 until October, Black Monday, first Monday in October in 1987, when the stock market crashed. We always seem to be repeating history on different levels for different reasons. And the market in New York continued to climb even post um, that crash till the first quarter of of, uh, March of um, 88, where it finally collapsed. So we were one of the more active transactional law firms during that period from 84 to 88. Market collapsed. My clients were buying a lot of buying a lot of assets and borrowing from Ensign Bank, which is an FSB out of um, New Jersey. Um, that bank went owned by, I think, um, same owners of Carnival Cruise Line, I think, at the time, the Aronson family. And uh, that collapsed. So I had, to, I had to make a decision either to become a bankruptcy lawyer, because most of my clients were bankrupt, or to form a real estate company. So from I decided the latter, thank God. I, I was a lawyer for six years, and to me, it was three years too long. I learned everything I wanted to learn as a lawyer in my first three years of practice, and the second three years was more of a was more of a drag. So during those last three years, like I said in '87, we decided to buy our own real estate because we thought, as lawyers, we were much smarter than our clients, and clearly buying uh, or syndicating large real estate transactions in New York in the first half of 87 was not a very good business plan. So what was your first deal, that that first transaction when you decided to go into real estate? What was your first opportunity? Well, the first opportunity was a small deal on 124th Street right off the Tribal Bridge. I think it was the address may have been 210 East 124 or some number on 124th Street. Well, we bought a vacant building in um, Upper Manhattan for future development or sale. A lot of the work we were doing was a lot of clients buying up in Harlem, Washington Heights, and the northern parts of, of, of Manhattan, and then reselling them very quickly during that period of time for a lot more money. Only years later did those properties ever become developed and create the uh, the robust neighborhoods that now exist. But in the early 80s, through the late 80s, it was all land speculation in addition to tax-driven rental property development. So how do you go from that initial deal in an incredibly pioneering neighborhood to then growing your portfolio into more prime areas, bigger projects, and becoming much more of a developer. How does that transition happen? So 
It was 424th Street, and then we bought, this is the syndicated deal we did, a full block front on Columbus Avenue. I think it was between 68th and 69th uh, on the Upper West Side. We had uh, amazing uh, full block of retail and apartments above, and then buildings down on Henry Street. You know, talk about where markets are when we bought our property uh, on Columbus Avenue, in 1987, rents on Columbus Avenue had grown to $250 a foot. When the market collapsed, not even a year later, the rents on Columbus Avenue were less than half that. So when you become a student of cycles of real estate, you start to be able to be able to have educated guesses on where markets will go and what price ranges of the upside and the downside can be. So my first experience was personal and for clients watching them build portfolios on the upswing and then watching them make that very last deal, which is sometimes the biggest deal they've done, end up essentially um, bringing them all uh, financial grief and uh, effectively filing bankruptcy those times. So we started off first with some walk-ups, and then when we formed our own company, it's called Property Markets Group, with former Ensign head, lane, head lending banker Kevin Maloney. The company was called Property Markets Group in 1991. We were scraping together money to buy uh, from the OTS and, and, and FDIC. So in times when you should be buying real estate, there's no capital around. And when you times when you shouldn't be buying real estate, there's an abundance of capital. So would you say this this cycle in this market is the same and that holds true? Because it seems like there is a lot of capital out there now, but there's not a lot of real estate to buy. But I think we're in maybe part of a down cycle caused by this pandemic maybe it's temporary what are your thoughts on that well this is rather unique this is a period of time but even before you get to that so the, you know there were several, there were a couple of cycles even before then so you had the 84 to 88 let's call it um uh, exuberant real estate market around the country and in new york during that period of time you had the financial collapse from 88 through 91, real estate started to recover in 1992. It was a period of time where you had um, Goldman Sachs had Whitehall, and I think Credit Suisse had uh, um, some other companies. It was a very active time for investment banks to be getting involved in the real estate market at extraordinarily discounted pricing. Again, buying from the government, uh, OTS, FDIC, we then became um, a buyer of real estate in a new company, Property Markets Group, buying very well-located walk-ups from governmental agencies, including a couple of buildings on 64th Street off Central Park, um, entire block fronts on First Avenue in the 60s, probably over 100 buildings from 1990, over maybe 150 buildings from 1991, through early 2000s. So the real estate market continued to climb. Talk about a black swan event. The next experience where real estate was compromised was the ruble, French ruble crisis in 1998. Something called long-term capital, which was a hedge fund of sorts, um, made a big bet on currency exchange rates and the market collapsed in I think it was the second half of 19, early second half of 1998. So if you bought a building in the beginning of 98 and you needed to sell it before the end of the year, by way of example, it was worth half because all the liquidity got sucked out of the market. And I remember we were closing a deal with Lehman Brothers. We were buying a property um, on the corner of 57th and 7th Avenue. The name slips me right now, which eventually became one of the anchor sites for um, Gary Barnett's project um, 157 years later. 
and Lehman Brothers called me up on a Friday and said, you're going to get a phone call from the Financial Times in Europe because there was a rumor going around that Lehman Brothers, this was 10 years before they actually went bankrupt, there was a rumor going on that Lehman Brothers had missed a bond payment in London and we heard you're closing a $25 million deal with them. Mind you, only $25 million. Lehman Brothers called me up and said, you're going to get a call from the Financial Times. Please let them know we're closing your deal with you on Monday. So I got literally, I don't know if he was a CFO or somebody who worked for the CFO of Lehman telling me to let the guy know that they're making us a $20 million loan following Monday because they were afraid there was going to be a run on the bank and which only happened 10 years later, anecdotally. Incredible. So it seems to me like you're looking at, you know, at this point of your career at opportunities from a much more legal and financial long-term kind of investment play, or are you looking at also developing then and taking real estate and converting it to a higher and better use? What, what was your business so, model? So it started off, really buying um, distressed real estate and then, uh, you know, value-add plays, which was renovating um, old, um, extraordinarily well-located walk-ups. We then graduated to a big apartment buildings. We owned, the um, first time I bought the Bell Nord was in 1994. We bought a building called 190 Riverside on a beautiful building on 91st and Riverside Drive. Two first examples of vertical housing luxury vertical housing around the turn of the century that New Yorkers were moving towards. Wealthy New Yorkers were living in brownstones up and down the avenues through the late 1800s and buildings of that type, including the Dakota and, and, and San Remo, were all essentially tapping into the wealthy New York consumer who was moving away from townhouse living to vertical townhouse living. So 190 Riverside was a perfect example of townhouse living in a vertical environment with a doorman. The builder was one of the first best examples of that. So we started buying these old pre-war buildings that previous owners had were struggling with and converting them to condos. What made us go into that business was something called the... Um, so now we're touching on rent stabilization. During the 90s, you had a, uh, a perfect storm for real estate developers where you had a Republican mayor, you had a Republican governor, you had a Republican Senate. So we had Pataki, we had um, Giuliani, you had uh, both houses in the Senate were controlled by Republicans. And they created what was called the, tax, the Tenant Reform Act in 1997, I believe, which essentially created the decontrol laws that you now see, which have now been unwound once again, which gave the opportunity for people to buy a building and instead of what before the act you had to get insiders to buy to convert a building, after, after the 97 Tenant Reform Act, you no longer needed insiders to, to convert a building. So once you got a vacancy, you were allowed to renovate a charge whatever you want, and then you can convert a building with a 15% um, buy-in, and you didn't need any of the existing rent stabilized tenants and buy. So that changed that market entirely, and we were the beneficiaries of that. We converted some very big buildings, 500 West End, 190 Riverside, downtown, uh, east side. Probably at that time we were... What Time Equities did in the 80s for conversions, we were probably one of the larger converters of occupied buildings during the 90s. We moved on from that, and all those buildings required, you know, renovation, upscale, creating luxurious experiences in pre-war buildings. That was our first experience with taking architecturally significant, some iconic, like the Bellwood buildings, and bringing them up to modern-day standards and then converting them for more money. We then moved into the hotel business. We were buying these old welfare hotels and converting them for the purpose of converting them to um, class A hotels. So we bought about five or six big old pre-war turn of the century buildings and went into the hotel business from about 1998 
to um, 2000 on the Ave, a hotel on 77th and Broadway, the Allerton, a hotel on 57th and Lex. We did what was then called the Martha Washington on 29th and 30th and Madison, a building on the Upper West Side on 73rd Street called the uh, out the um, Tempo. At one point, we had about 2,000 hotel keys, and we formed a hotel management company called City Life Hotels. So something happened again. So we had the tax. You had the 1998 long-term capital crisis, sucked out capital in 1998. You then had 2,000 tech bubble burst. Again, New York real estate was not affected by either one of those events other than for that period of time where there was no capital in 98. The tech bubble in 2000 didn't really negatively impact New York real estate very much. 9-11 came a year later, and the entire hotel market was essentially temporarily wiped out. So not that dissimilar to what's taking place today, we were fortunate that we... And in 9-11, it took the New York residential market only four months to recover. So this is a really very important thing to understand. You know, every mm-hmm. event, every negative event has negative impact. You then need to understand what the impact is locally where that event is taking place. The hotel market took at least two years to recover after 9-11, and that sort of made sense because people were afraid to travel TSA came into effect. America and the world would change forever from that event. The real estate market, the residential real estate market, and office market to an extent, to a lesser extent, recovered within four months, literally. So when real estate pricing had had gone down or there was no activity, it only took four months in order for that to recover. And so we were letting go at the time maybe a couple of thousand employees in the hotel business, we were fortunate enough to have the residential market recover. So we were taking all the capital that we were making on our conversions during that period of time and supporting the hotels. We had a decision to make was to let the hotels go, and a lot of hotels ended up back with their lenders. We decided to take the money we were making on the residential portfolio and put them back at the hotels, hoping one day we would get our money back. Lo and behold, the hotel market recovered in um, 2000, end of 2002, beginning 2003, and we were fortunate enough to sell our hotels in 2007-2008, the last one being a hotel that Lehman Brothers, ironically, financed for the purchaser and closed, believe it or not, in June of 08. So Lehman Brothers, 10 years later from when they closed on a deal with me on 57th and Black, on um, 7th Avenue, did one of the last deals before they that went out of business 10 years later in May of 2008. And the bankers at the time were saying, you guys just got this under the wire because it looks like we're going to be closing the lights soon. Closing. Were you dealing with the same people you were 10 years prior or it was a different group? No, absolutely. Same people? Same, same group. Yeah, I mean, Mark Walsh ran the real estate division. So how important was that relationship? Uh, was that a was was that important part of and component of the deal? It was a very important relationship. But remember, we we were we utilized them in many ways. So we got them into the at the time they were recapitalizing a lot of our rental properties where for conversion. So they took out some of our old partners. But those days we were raising capital together with uh, Gary Barnett. Um, a lot of overseas high net worth families, they had tax sensitivity to doing conversions. So they sold out at stepped up values. Lehman Brothers came in and recapitalized those properties based on our performance that we were converting them. And lo and behold, it worked very well from 1994 through 2001, where 
Lehman Brothers was in the business of investing capital. We were covering the buildings. They were getting a great yield. And um, our original partners that we had were cashed out for significant profits earlier. We then used them for hotel development, and they had a very robust uh, hotel program, and uh, all very well to the very end. <laughs> so I like to say it was from 98 to 2008 where two events they were involved with uh, were almost prophetically forecasting what would happen 10 years later. Right. Fascinating. And then 2008 comes and the world kind of shuts down. Uh, our market freezes. And then what do you do? So 2008 um, is a financial crisis. So we were fortunate enough to guess more right than wrong where I sold most of our, all the hotels were sold. So we timed the market there, luckily, perfectly. And most of our inventory in condos were sold out. I actually, a couple of years earlier, formed a company which I have now called HFZ Capital. Uh, my former partner, Kevin, was, was doing more stuff in Florida, and uh, so we decided to um, make our own way. And um, I looked at the 2008 crisis and said, just like I had said back in 19, in um, as a lawyer in 1984, Coming out of the oil crisis, I had seen my clients be very successful in the run-up, and I wanted to participate that with that. So we were buying very well, and again, luckily in 91 with that run-up. And in 2008, when most people were cowering because the sky was falling, we were fortunate to be one of the more aggressive buyers of the handful of deals that were available between 2009 and 2010 and shifted gears to wanting to be a more of a ground-up developer. So I hired some of the best construction professionals out there from the um, open land leases of the world, um, Tishmans of the world, and we formed a development, real estate development company and we started buying properties matter of foreclosure we bought a note on Bryant Park we built a, a building beautiful building called the Bryant we bought a, a building that we built called the house on 51st and 2nd where there was a tragedy where a crane collapsed and seven people were, were unfortunately killed we bought that from the bank and then we built that building um, and a number of others during that period of time so when most were sitting on their hands, frozen in fear, we, uh, because of my experience, both as a lawyer and then professionally, had confidence in our city uh, that we would be buying a real estate again and come back. And lo and behold, that financial crisis, and again, everything was with, you have to take, you need to be a student of demographics and global trends and and which includes interest rates, which includes uh, immigration, which includes, you know, it's all about supply and demand in every business that you're in. Somebody is always looking to sell something and, and hopefully somebody wants to buy it. I had believed in 2008 that um, this was going to, in the end of 2008, that this was going to just be in a period of time where there'd be some opportunities to, to buy things well and the city would recover. Another anecdote, when we were designing our building called the Halcyon, 51st and 2nd, now mind you, this was a 17-story superstructure building built. 17-story was already built. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a 48-story building. It ended up being, I think, a 40-story building. But we married a new structure to this old structure. And when we designed it in 2009, end of 2009, nobody thought that large families would want to come back to the city. We all thought that with the financial crisis, it was all about lower pricing. You're in this business, Sean, and we we designed a building where it was all studios and one bedrooms and maybe a handful of two bedrooms. Right. In midstream, already by the first quarter of 2010, when the market really started to appreciate again, 
we scrapped the plan and we created larger apartments. So literally as a developer, you need to, you know, the development life is generally five to seven years and you may be over one or more cycles. Here's a perfect example. Coming out of the crisis, thinking total dollars is more important than large family units, and then literally six to eight months within that process, changed gears and, and put a larger mix of larger apartments as well. And lo yes. and behold, you know, we got lucky on that project as well. So Fascinating. I mean, listening to your story, you've been through so many cycles and you have the experience and, I mean, you have to write a book about all of this one day if you, if you find the time. But you've come out on the other side in every cycle, I'm sure, much more educated and stronger. And, you know, I think there's been some level of luck associated with it, but it's also been very strategic and you've really educated yourself and done incredibly well because of that. And, you know, that's, that's remarkable to have gone through so many cycles over so many decades and come out stronger each time. So, you know, the, the big question I have now, as I'm sure everyone listening to this is, wants to ask you, is where do you see us now? Where do you see the trend? Where do you see us in the cycle? And where do you see the opportunity moving forward? By the way, luck is important in every business. And, you know, the very famous uh, company called Owen Y, Olympia York, which is one of the wealthiest uh, real estate development companies in the world at the time, in the 80s, before the... Uh, first financial crisis I lived through, Paul Reichman was quoted as saying, if I had to, uh, and he was a, a devoutly religious Jewish man, he said, um, if I, God gave me the choice of luck or smarts, I would take 99.9% luck and give me one-tenth of 1% one smarts. So <laughs> that's true in any business. Um, yeah. But you really need to be in the game in order to have luck. So... Where we are today is a little tricky. Generally, uh, my short history in this business, I've been a contrarian as far as when I'm buying and when I'm selling. Um, I advise all young people all the time, you never try to guess the top of the market. And it's no different in stock picking either. And don't ever try to buy the bottom of the market. Um, if you're anywhere in the middle, you're, you're trading in, in, the, in the middle market, you'll always do very well. The time the bottom and time the top, you know, you do require a lot of luck and it doesn't always happen. Our residential condo market, which is up in our primary business, had some challenges the last couple of years. Um, ironically, as you're a witness to, it seems like uh, the market has picked up in, uh, rather dramatically in the last beginning of this quarter before this um, crisis took place. So with respect to where we see opportunities, um, you know, first opportunity I, I had seen as a lawyer in 84 was different than the opportunities I had seen after 2001 and certainly the opportunities that we saw in 2008-2009. This one, because it's a, it's probably the greatest shock to the, from a financial perspective, forget about the human perspective, but from a financial perspective, it's the greatest shock much greater than all the other ones I just mentioned to you that I, during my career, but it potentially can be the shortest. And the issue like you're hearing from everybody is how, well, how long it will take to get back to business as usual. Part of that is the pandemic itself, and part of it, and even a greater part, is the psychological element that people have. So whether you're in the and what I did learn in the cycle after 9-11 was as a real estate investor and developer, you need to diversify the holdings that you have. Because if I didn't have the residential assets after 9-11, I would have lost all my hotels. So we made a purposeful decision to go into different areas of real estate Two, three years ago, I sort of anticipated, well, certainly not the pandemic, but I anticipated softings in different areas of, of the market. And if 
you look back in, in 1996, I was quoted with my partner, then Kevin Maloney. We were at the uh, picture on the front page of Cranes in front of the Bell Nord. I was quoted as saying real estate in New York had reached a peak in 96, and um, it was time to look elsewhere. So I was only off by 10 years on that one. <laughs> right. Um, in this particular case, I think the opportunities today are in the public markets, REITs. We're, trying, we're putting together a, a fund of sorts to look to invest in blue-chip REITs that are trading at huge discounts to fair market value of the assets. We looked at this business previously in the end of 2018, where REITs were, were trading at 20 to 30% discounts, not just of the high of the of their stock, but also valuing the underlying assets. They were at a discount to what the assets would be priced at on the private market. For end of 2018, the feeling was real uh, interest rates were going to go up in a big way. That negatively impacted on publicly traded companies. By the first quarter of 2019, people realized that was no longer a risk, that real estate was actually, interest rates were actually going to either go down or stay steady, which they did, and the REIT market recovered. So that opportunity was as, excited, as exciting even one quarter later. Today, we see this event taking down a lot of companies that otherwise would not be priced at where they are. So that's one, way, one place where we see opportunity. To continue my diversification strategy, we opened up a, um, two years ago, we bought a, some friends of my children. I have one kid in the business, his name is Adam. Another kid was with me, and then uh, he left to open up a chain of um, fast casual restaurants called Springbone, which of course today is somewhat challenged. Mm-hmm. But we had decided, and so that two friends, um, a family that we knew out of Westchester had, had an industrial development company with a financial partner that was looking to be bought out. So we bought most of that company, and we've been building an industrial portfolio around the country, which today is in excess of 11 million square feet, and closed our last transaction with, um, was reported yesterday in a commercial observer, observer with Ladder Capital, which has experienced huge swings in pricing at the public company now. We closed an acquisition of 4 million square feet outside of Chicago about literally two and a half weeks ago as the coronavirus was kicking in. Well, congratulations. Thank you. But what we're seeing, and this is, this is why you talk about how do you, what's your best guess on where things are going to go? Under the current administration, manufacturing, and income growth has been had been accelerating. So technology has also allowed American manufacturing to come back and to start to, in a big way, um, proliferate because technology has brought down the, the, the spread and cost of manufacturing goods here versus China. So that's allowed us to close that cost gap a little bit and we're very encouraged with America's make in America mantra where we're now going to be able to compete a little bit more positive than than China's and the Vietnam's in the world so we're seeing the manufacturing coming back and of course the distribution and logistics in, in a big way so we've made a big bet on industrial and from a tax advantage perspective and from a asset class perspective it does very well with our for sale condo projects in new york so here we're buying in places like uh, ocala florida and uh madison wisconsin non-sexy industrial stuff to rent to the caterpillars and amazons of the world versus selling high-end condos in our common market in new york <laughs> yeah Two completely great juxtaposition. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Talk about a diversification. That's that's great. But we hope to grow that even more, and uh, we think it's a great. You know, the yields are. It may not be sexy, but the yields have been shocking to me. During this crisis, as well, we continue to have interest to sign leases. I was just watching CNBC before you called. 
and Caterpillar is out there hiring. Um, if this infrastructure bill comes through in the next um, phase four, which is bipartisan for over $2 billion, I think that will again be a big shot for job growth and and employment opportunities in, in the U.S. So companies like Caterpillar and others will explode. Mm-hmm. So we're very bullish on that. At the same time, we also decided to build an office tower to go into the rental market that way. And we're in the ground and continue to be building an office. We will hope will be one of the more iconic office towers in, in the city. That's what we're told it looks like. Uh, with the same architect who did our XI project, the Angles. And again, diversification from the pure for sale market. Fantastic. How, how do you educate yourself and keep up to date with your comprehensive knowledge that inform your decisions that you make? What, what does your day look like? What do you read? How are you keeping up to date? Not only juggling and handling all of these projects that you're working on, but keeping up to date with your knowledge base and making decisions based on what you're learning. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to surround yourself. You know, I have a partner uh, kind of near my ear and I have another uh, guy named John Shannon. So we have very capable people who can execute and, and create so you can't be a, a, you know, certainly not a one-man show at all. I'm more of a, these days, 30, you know, looking above and and watching. I got educated by the market, and people were partners of, of mine. We educated each other. Now I've educated the younger people who work for me, and lo and behold, they're, they've taken over to a large extent, including my son. So I have the luxury of, and the and of time as well, to be more of this deep thinker you're employing than I am. <laughs> in reality, it's just being a student of what you're in. So everything, like I mentioned to you, from demographics to politics, I'm keenly aware of how politics implicate, uh, impact on markets. New York, as you know, I think is a self-inflicted political damage to the economy of the city pre-corona. Um, different states in the country follow a certain political position that I think is not beneficial to um, business. It's guessing where those will land, will, how will the people in power change. Um, it's a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. The diversity part of it that was really what's very exciting for me. You know, one example, when we bought this building called the Bell Nord, which is a full square block, and really was one of the, at one time it was built in 1903. I bought this with Carrie Barnett in 1994. And when it was built in 1903, it was the largest residential building in the world at the time. I then sold out to the partnership in the mid nineties and then bought it back about four or five years ago. So, for me, we're building a square block down on 17th and 18th Street, ground up 21st century imagination of how some how people would want to live the best way we can imagine how they'd want to live. With Bjork Angles, one of the leading architect, contemporary architects of the world, um, he actually just designed a 3D mask that's being talked about in the news, uh, where literally a printer, 3D printer, creates these uh, masks that can be produced in seconds, uh, which is now working its way through the hospital system, which is extraordinary. Incredible. So we're building this vision, 21st century vision, square block with a big courtyard inside. At the same time, we're restoring a turn-of-the-century full square block, Bell Norton, 8697, with Robert Stern. So we took a Temporary traditional, we took a traditionalist, modernist traditionalist, Robert Stern, among probably the best in the city with all the successes he's had, reimagining how people would want to live from the turn of the century in the 21st century, and then creating this ground up contemporary iconic building, also a square block, almost 100 blocks downtown and 100 years apart. So selling to a market. Were products 
that were built a hundred years hundred years apart and close to a hundred blocks further away from each other uh, with the two leading architects in each category to me is a a something I think was very rare and privileged to be able to do absolutely incredible what are the main differences if you can give us a sneak peek of the new product what does that look like so today and, and we're seeing this also in the office tower that we're, we've designed in our building and you see it here as well you see it even more than i i'm sure being out there with the consumer people want to work the way they live and they want to live like they're living with all the amenities of a hotel. And it's, a, it's now become almost a blur. Off Our office tower we're designing will have the amenities of a hotel, make you feel like you're a place, because you spend most of your day in the waking hours in this office, so you want to feel as comfortable as you would in your house. And, you know, we work in others, kind of touched on this a bit, but... Our office tower will have all outdoor space. It'll have, just like the apartments have outdoor space, it has all the amenities, wellness. Um, we teamed up with Six Senses, which is the leading hotel brand over the last three years by content, by um, travel and leisure, which is the number one brand for wellness, sophisticated wellness. I like to call it decadent wellness, where Everything from how you sleep, how you breathe, how you eat, how you exercise, how you view the world, how you, is all centered around healthy living. So our office tower, every floor, never been done in New York before, we'll have outdoor space, we'll have healthy eating, we'll have I sat in a meeting um, several months ago, and uh, I was told that we need to have a scream room. Not scream, but scream. <laughs> I said, I said like, what is that? What, you, what the hell are you talking about? So I said, well, when people who are upset about their employer, either yelling at them or maybe it's the millennials have very thin skin, um, they need a place to detox and to vent. <laughs> So it's a freaking scream room. So when I heard this, I ran out of the room screaming, actually. <laughs> me, what the hell are you talking about? That's, that's hilarious. Um, so we go from a scream room in an office building to imagining six-star hotel services in our XI project in New York. Amazing. Uh, air, air and light is critical, right? So downtown XI, we had a 400-foot ceiling with a million square feet. Uh, even though it's a square block, you need to create, we created buildings that move away from each other. Bjarke Engel designed these two twisting towers that allowed maximum views, 360 degree views of the water in the city, and the buildings are not competing with each other. They're in fact complementing each other. Yeah, really Except beautiful. That with the Bell Nord, where you have every apartment facing the courtyard, beautiful 22,000 foot courtyard, fully landscaped, Again, air and light is critical. Whether you're in an office, whether you're in a when you, whether you're in a um, in an apartment house, a little less critical, much less critical in a hotel where you're only staying for a night or two or three. So, learning, guessing where you think your clientele, your customer is going to want to live and work, is where I think the difference between you know, success and just being another project that will either do good or not do good, depending on what market you're in. You have to assume your markets will always be challenged. You know, years ago, when I broke into this business, having information in the early 80s was where you made created value where other people didn't have information. Today, everybody has all the information. There's nothing nobody doesn't know. It's how you interpret that information which differentiates you from others. And here, imagining how you would want to spend your working, living, and and relaxing life, we've tried to tap with the best professionals in the business. Well, I think you've you've made a huge addition to that and definitely are at the forefront of uh, innovation and how people are going to live their lives in the future. 
Zeal, thank you so much for, sh for sharing your story and your insight and um, your wealth of knowledge. It's really been a privilege to listen to your story and, you know, touch the surface on that. Five quick questions before I let you, let you go. Do you have a favorite quote? I know you mentioned a quote earlier, but do you have a favorite quote you like to live by? don't have a favorite. I will say as a real estate guy uh, years ago, and it's somewhat true, uh, um, Seymour Durst. Remember Seymour Durst? Famous, yeah. Um, he had once said, I'll never buy anything I can't walk to. So there's a certain amount of truth to be saying if you're going to develop an expertise in something, you know, keep it close to home. As you get further further away from your strength, it gets the chances of failure get greater. So even if you're a company like ours, that's one of the larger development companies doing stuff in Florida or elsewhere, is always more challenging than in New York where your offices are and where your connections are. So that was always something I found. Yeah, that's a great quote. Great quote. Do you have a favorite book? I don't. I'm, oh, okay. I don't read much now. It's mostly, um, mostly industry uh, and the news. And yeah. Um, what's your favorite building in the world? Other than the XI? Other than the XI and the Belnord, yeah. of course. I love the Louvre as a building. Mm. Great uh, because, choice. Primarily because of the, again, the mix, the, the IMP edition, the, that contemporary glass triangle cube as it enhances the turn-of-the-century structure. But to me, actually mixing contemporary architecture with pre-war architecture um, is the most challenging and the most rewarding to me. Yeah. And, if, and why? I mean, one reason is, you know, history and, and future all kind of come together. Yeah, that's a great philosophy. And uh, the Louvre is actually, I think it's my favorite building in the world as well, just magnificent. Yeah. And then, you know, last question, if, you know, with all of this luxury of history and experience, if you had to look back at yourself, you know, you mentioned your son is in the business. If you had to look back at your 20-year-old self today and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? I think it would be continue to be an educated contrarian. Great. Well, listen, again, congratulations on all of your success over so many cycles thank you for giving so much to the city that i live in and you know doing so many incredible things and well thank you you, you as well sean uh, built a great company and your you know what you've done with your different developers including related and hudson yards everywhere hats off to you thank you very much well i'm looking forward to seeing the next cycle or the next 10 years of what you guys will bring to the market and I'll be following that very closely. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to share, you know, all of your wealth of information. Thank you. All right. Take care. Be safe. Be healthy. You too. And stay sane through this coronavirus. All right. You too. Thanks. You'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye.